0: This is Dave Brown, and welcome to the Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy Podcast. As an adventure therapy nonprofit organization, we cater to frontline workers, especially those in the public safety and healthcare sectors. On this podcast, we cover relevant topics to public safety and our frontline workers' overall health by exploring the mental health benefits gained through outdoor recreation, leadership development, and self-improvement. If you have a story you'd like to share, send us an email at podcast at frontlinefreedom.org. If you're looking for more information about frontline freedom Adventure therapy trips, check out our website at www.frontlinefreedom.org. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is Dave, and my guest today is Chief Joseph Kitchen from the Bath Township Fire Department out of Lima, Ohio. And Chief Kitchen joined the fire department back in 1990 as a volunteer, and he served six years as a lieutenant, was appointed to the position of fire chief in April of 2002. Um, Additionally, in uh, 2016, Chief Kitchen was appointed to the board of directors of the Ohio Fire Chiefs Association as a director at large and has subsequently been re-elected twice. So thank you for uh, carving time out your day today, Chief. I know you're a busy guy, so I greatly appreciate it.
1: I appreciate you having me, Dave. I'm looking forward to our conversation and it's always great to talk to you. Uh, Thanks.
0: Likewise. So before we get started, kind of um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, how, how did you get to where you are now? I mean, um, you've been the chief since uh, 2002. That's a pretty long standing time and I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of stories. So kind of briefly
1: go through some of that stuff for us. Sure. Well, I kind of tripped into the fire service accidentally. You know, a lot of the guys I work with have these awesome stories about, you know, their father and grandfather were in the fire service and, you know, they, they, they grew up you know, always knowing that's what they wanted to do. I was kind of heading in a different direction. I was thinking something more along owning a business and so forth, but um, I knew some people who were involved in the volunteer fire department at the time. And I had taken some, you know, red cross classes, you know, CPR first aid stuff like that. And I enjoyed it. And they were really looking for EMS personnel. And so I did it just kind of, you know, as, Something to do a little bit out of boredom, but it didn't take long to fall in love with it. And, and and I think I fell in love with the the family atmosphere of being part of an organization. And then it started a path of, of living a life of service to others, which has really been my main motivation: is helping people, working with people. And uh, here I am, thirty-one years later. You know, I was just a nineteen-year-old kid. Uh, checking out what was available and you know never had any clue that it would open all these doors but uh it's really been a it's been a great a great ride and uh, what an honor to have served as the fire chief all these years so it's uh it's been quite an achievement and um every every day I still you know get up and look forward to coming to work I'm not one of those people that you know, turns the alarm off three or four times, I'm 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 up and ready to go and, and happy to be here every day.
0: I think there's something to be said about uh, being happy to be there every day, because I, I, especially in public safety, you kind of see the cynicism that comes along with the job because you, you see the same things over and over. You're exposed to things that, you know, they're not always the most pleasant things to have to deal with. And I know that the fire services, you know, just like in law enforcement or, you know, any of the other public safety uh, jobs that are out there, um, you know, how, how have you all these years managed to keep that positive outlook? Because I've known you for going on six or seven years now, and I've never seen you in a bad mood. and I've never seen you um, disgruntled about anything. I've seen you handle bad news and take it in stride and just move forward. So, you know, what's, what keeps you, I guess, you know, motivated to keep coming in after 31 years of doing the job?
1: Um, I hope it's because you're part of something that's you know bigger than yourself. You know, I'm a small piece of this organization, and I look at the work that the men and women that I'm here with are doing every day. and you know doing we're doing good stuff. and and I really let that be the motivation. Of course, there are challenges, you know um, you know working for a governmental agency, there's you know there's funding issues, there's staffing issues. And of course, you know, any anything that has to do with people, sometimes there's people problems, there's human resource issues and so forth. So, you know, I'm I'm not uh, foolish enough to believe that, you know, every day is a, a, a rainbow at the end. You know, there are days that are hard, but I guess I'm just so focused on the good stuff. You know, the, the impact that we're having on the community and the ability to, you know, interface with people who are suffering and struggling um you know it's not every day that somebody's in a a bad car crash or you know their house is on fire or a family member suffering a, a significant medical emergency um and you know it's almost like they're opening up their life to invite you into this tragedy and you get a very small snippet of time to, to try to make a difference. And for me, that's what I've, that's what I've always focused on. That's, that's what's propelled me and motivated me is just, you know, the good things that we're doing. And, um, I don't know if that works for everybody, but, but for me, I've always tried to stay focused on the positive.
0: I think that's a tremendous insight that you have to stay focused on that positive. And I go back to the example years ago Um, I had an academy instructor that would ask everyone in the class when the last time they crashed their car was. And, you know, everyone, you know, would have different days and the instructor would pick someone from, you know, 10 years ago. I was last time I crashed my car and they would ask specific questions about that day. You know, what was the weather like? What was the situation surrounding it? And everyone could answer, you know, very specifically in that moment of of personal tragedy um all these specific things that we remember but then the follow up question was what did you eat for dinner on wednesday last week and nobody can remember that and i i think that you know sometimes we we get too focused on the the negative that comes with the job because we remember all those things and i know you've got stories of things that'll stick with you your entire career just you know as everyone else does but I think what you said there is incredibly insightful, is staying focused on that positive, and that's a very good way of looking at things when you specifically said that you're being invited into someone's life and you have a this moment in time that you can make a difference and and you choose to do that. And you, that's what you choose to look at. It's not okay, let's look at your house is burned down or let's look at the fact that you're in a car crash. No, it's we're gonna make a difference. We're going to help you through this, you know, shared experience and and help move you forward through the community. I think that's incredibly
1: insightful. And you know, after all these years, um, you're right. There are really tough things that that do stick with me, but I have to tell you, I forget way more than I remember It, it. it happens to me, and I'm sure this has happened to you, where you'll run into somebody, um, you know, at the store or just out and about, and, you know, they'll come up to you as if you should know them. And they'll say, do you remember? And they'll say, when my grandma's house caught on fire and you did this and you did this and you did this, or my, my sister was in a bad crash, or I had a heart attack and you did this and you said this and you, and it, it almost kind of breaks my heart because I have zero memory. <laughs> I have zero memory, you know. I want to you know, reminisce with them and talk about it. And so many times I, I just can't even remember, you know, and I'll just say something like, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad it turned out okay, or I'm, you look good and I hope everything's okay. Um, but, you know, I wonder if, if I just have a bad memory or if that's something that just ha- happening where I'm just disposing of this information that I, that I no longer need but the, the impact that you make on others, they remember it. In those tragedies, they remember the face of the person that told them that you know, their loved one didn't make it or um, you know, delivered that bad news. And I know you, know you and I have talked about that being some of the toughest parts of our job is, is notifying people of, of tragedy. And they'll, you know when, as you're walking up the sidewalk to knock on that front door, you're about to do something that they're going to remember, you know, they're going to take it all the way to their, to their grave with them. They're never going to forget. Um, and, you know, depending on the circumstance, maybe you'll remember, maybe you won't. But uh, for me, I, it seems like I, I don't have intimate memories um, like the victims do. Sure.
0: And you know, that, that does happen from time to time. I, for me, I can't remember you know, if I saw someone walking on the the sidewalk, I wouldn't know where I know them from. I might recognize them as being familiar and just not know why. Um, But as soon as someone says something, it kind of takes me back like, oh, I I do remember this. And, you know, unfortunately, I have had those. I I remember vividly um, sitting in a Chipotle line, uh, of course, me and Chipotle, but um, a guy, two people behind me, he's, and I'm I'm not in uniform. I'm just, you know, jeans and a t-shirt doing just normal, normal day of stuff. And he's, he says something to me. He says, Hey troop. And I, you know, naturally I just looked around and I'm like, who's this guy talking to? And it was me. And uh, he remembered, um, you know, he remembered me coming to the house to do a death notification. And the more he talked, the more I remembered about that incident, but leading up to it, I had no idea who the guy was. I mean, I didn't recognize him from anywhere. And I think that's, that's a normal thing, but uh, yeah, it does happen. It sure, certainly does. No doubt. So you, if, if, I I think I'm correct in assuming this, um, but you were the chief when the fire department transitioned from part-time to full-time, correct?
1: Actually, yes. um, But a little more, we were actually an all volunteer organization and we, we transitioned out of that through a couple of different phases, eventually moving to, you know, a career department with some, um, with some part-time staff and eliminating uh the use of volunteers and um yeah those now those memories are vivid (laughs) i do i do remember all of that stuff very clearly it was it was not it was not easy
0: well and i the reason i bring that up is because some of the most stressful times in our lives are when we go through um, immense change um you know obviously going from a a volunteer all the way up through a full-time department um, I'm sure that people that were volunteers through there probably took that personally. And um, am I correct? And I guess assuming that that, that they, was there any animosity felt with uh, the people that no longer had the volunteer positions?
1: It was really tough. And, and Dave, we did everything we could to try to retain the volunteers, to try to create opportunities for them um, to stay part of the organization. But they had to meet us halfway, and maybe that was obtaining a certification or, um, you know, some other type of training. And and we did everything we could to try to hold those relationships in place. As a matter of fact, I remember, again, vivid memory. I had the entire fire department in the room, and I remember standing up front saying, "Any person that wants to continue to be part of this organization, you know, can be and will be, you know, as long as you want to." And I lost. Um, I lost some people. I lost friends. Um, you know, there were people who I really loved and cared about that um, those relationships were severed. And some over time have come around, um, some have not. Some of those people have passed away. And those are the ones that really hurt me because I never got a chance to um, make that right um, before they were gone. Uh, it was, it was very, very tough. A lot of sleepless nights, uh, a lot of pain that, that was probably some of the most difficult times of my, my entire tenure on the, on the fire department. It was, uh, it was not easy.
0: So you know, going through that massive change and, you know, having those emotional responses that are connected to seeing, you know, like you said, losing friends or some have since passed away without kind of having that, um, you know, that closure, that talk. How, how do you overcome that as, as a leader? And, um, you know, what advice would you give to other people that are listening in leadership positions that are faced with, you know, either an organizational change or just, um, you know, having to reorganize everything in their, their personal lives?
1: What got me through that was I knew that we were doing the right thing. The needs of the organization are always greater than the needs of the individual. And I couldn't make decisions that were beneficial to one, two or three or four people. I had to make decision that was the best thing for the entire fire department and for our entire community, our entire population. And that's what kind of, propelled me through it i knew i was doing the right thing even though it was painful for some um and you know and again some people came along easily some people came kicking and screaming and some people didn't come at all but that's what did it for me was i knew that when everything was in place that the level of service was going to be higher the response times were going to be faster, the training was going to be better. I, I knew that the final product was going to be a benefit for the organization and for the community. So that's what I stayed focused on. And it wasn't easy because, you know, again, you know, in the fire service, you, know, you, you live together, sleep together, eat together, you, know, you help each other move, you put roofs on each other's houses, you go to every kid's uh, graduation and you're in each other's weddings. These are, these are really tight-knit relationships. And uh, it, was, it was really hard to kind of draw that line between the friendships and what needed to be done for the organization. And I, I just really tried to stay focused, Dave. It was, it was tough, but you know, looking back on it, um, you know, I, I certainly don't have any regrets about what we did. I'd like to think that I have more finesse now and more I've had more birthdays <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I could have um, navigated through it a little better, but um, I did the best I could at the time with the resources I had and the experience that I had.
0: Well, I, I applaud you for the way in which you handled that because sometimes, you know, I, I, I figured you wouldn't say this, but I've heard it said by other people where they just say, look, it's just business and they move on and you know that obviously negates the human element of what a business is, and you know the fire service is a business. I mean, yes, it's government funded and and all that, and it's going to operate as long as there's funding, and you're not selling anything outside of peace of mind and safety. Um, and sometimes that's that's hard for people to wrap their minds around. But you know, I've heard so many people chalk up things like this to just saying, "Oh, it's just business." Well, it it is, but it isn't. You know, there's a human side to it. And the other thing that I've heard people say is, "What's good for the goose is good for the gander," and. Um, you know, that's an economic principle that that's, that's a falsehood. And, uh, you know, I applaud you for having the foresight to look through that, you know, this is better for the community. And that's ultimately what, what you're there to do. You're a public um, servant at the end of the day. So if you're not serving the public, then the, the, the service would cease to exist. So I applaud you. I know that had to have been hard and, and difficult. Obviously you still have, um, you know, mixed feelings about it, you know, even to this day, but um, you know, I applaud you for, for seeing that through successfully.
1: It was it was quite a challenge. And, and you, you know, you're right. It, it was a business decision in as much as, you know, there were, you know, a checklist of things that had to be done to get, you know, to get across the finish line. But, you know, not to be dramatic, but on one end, you know, it was to me, it was life or death. It was, you know, responding to emergencies in a in a quicker way, in a better way, in a uh, more organized way. But yet also. I wanted everybody to be happy. I wanted everybody in the organization to be happy. I wanted everybody in the community to be, happy. I wanted, you know, I did officials that were my bosses to be happy. And, you know, at some point you just had to realize that not everybody was gonna be happy, but I had to get across this finish line. And, um, you know, and we made it, but um, it, it was certainly painful. It was a, a, a time of, of, of growth for me, for sure.
0: Well, I, I can only imagine how much personal growth comes from going through, you know, something like that, especially at the rapid pace at which it, which it occurs. I mean, these are, these aren't just things that take 15, 20 years, you know, usually decision's made and then it's enacted pretty quick thereafter. So um, I can only imagine what that was like, but good for you for seeing it through. And and I think the uh, citizens are better for it now. So, um, yes. you know, thank you for your service on that end. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit when it comes to, you're the people in your command, you know, is, is mental health, uh, and, and the, the trauma that they're exposed to just on call after call after call, do you feel that that has gotten better at being addressed as time has gone on, or if there is more of a focus on that mental health aspect?
1: Yeah, it, it's been a huge change. I'm ashamed almost to tell you that I came up in a time when, Things didn't get talked about in the firehouse, Um, you know, it was kind of a tough guy organization, you know, it was almost like a, like a, you know, a a pirate ship. It was, you know, kind of rough and tumble guys that, you know, there was a lot of testosterone and machismo and bravado and all those, you know, words you can, you can use to describe a fire department. And, you know, nobody talked about their feelings. And um, that's kind of the world I came into but I'm so proud that we've come a million miles and you know, we've learned from our mistakes. You know, Dave, I remember early on, you know, being a new fire chief and maybe you'd hear through the grapevine, one of the firefighters would say, you know, hey, did you hear that uh, Bob and his wife split up and he's been staying at another firefighter's house and sleeping on the couch. And it was almost just kind of like firehouse gossip where you just say, oh wow, that's that's too bad. Or, you know, you, you just maybe, not even comment on it. Today, if that happened, if a firefighter came into me today and said, Hey, did you hear this? That firefighter would be in my office by the end of the day. And we'd be talking about how are you? What do you need? What can I do to help you? What can the fire department do to help you? How are you feeling? How are your kids? You know, those, those are conversations that never used to happen. And now they have to happen and they have to happen quick. And whatever resources that person needs, whether it's time off, whether it's um, you know access to you know services that we have available through you know our um, our partners, um, that stuff has to be made available. And again, those were conversations that just didn't happen, and now they have to happen.
0: Well, I'm glad that you take that stance of it. I know that's you know at least in my career, I've seen that shift be very slow. Um, you know, where, where you, you didn't, you didn't talk about things. You knew somebody was going through something and it was just, well, if they don't bring it up to me, then I don't have to talk about it. And that was almost the uh, mentality that was, you know, kind of rife within public safety in general, not just, you know, fire service or police service or whatever, but, you know, just everywhere. I think society in general was very much more hands off and I, I don't want to have to deal with this. And, um, y- you know, you knew somebody was struggling and you maybe keep an eye on them so that they wouldn't get themselves hurt, but you wouldn't do anything to help them through it. It was just, kind of there um and it sounds like that's the environment that that you sort of came up through
1: yeah and and when even at the beginning when you you would say um maybe decide that you wanted to talk to this person then they would be on the defensive you know their question would be do i need a union rep or you know do i need a lawyer up here uh they would be worried that you know they Expose themselves uh, something that's going on in their personal life, and now it's going to affect their job. So now here they're going through this, whether it's a marital issue or a child custody battle or whatever it would be, and now they're faced with possible, you know, discipline or losing their job. So you gotta you gotta knock that off the table right from the beginning. You know, you're in my office with the door closed, not because I'm launching some kind of investigation. It's because I care about you. Um, our people are our most important asset. And uh, I think I think we've gotten over that hurdle. But I can tell you at the beginning, uh, employees were reluctant to come in and, you know, tell me intimate details about their personal lives. And uh, and I get it. You know, who, who wants to sit face-to-face with their boss and, you know, start sharing that stuff? But I think once they realized it was a safe environment, um, we, we, we moved past that.
0: So as a leader, how do you create that safe environment where, you know, people don't feel like they're getting attacked? Because I think, well, at least from an observational standpoint, that's where a lot of holdup is for people kind of getting help. They may be able to hide things. And then, you know, for me in the police service it's a lot easier to hide things because people are out by themselves for hours on end. Um, but how do you as a leader create that safe environment to where they know that if they're coming into you with a problem that it's, you know, they're not facing a termination and this is, you know, we're going to try to get through this together and and seek that help.
1: Because I think you just have to lay the cards on the table. You know, I'm, I am here to help you now, granted, you know, people still have to show up for work on time. They still have to be in uniform. They still have to follow procedures. They can't come in impaired. You know, we still have rules and we still have policies and procedures and and all of those things, but you know, you're almost like throwing them a, a life rope, um, that they can grab a hold of, and you know, sometimes they need time off. Sometimes they need um, directives to find counseling. You know, we have an employee assistance program through our occupational health. Um, we've we've set people up with with those kind of services before, and I, I think you just have to you have to make them feel safe by telling them, you know, what what your intention is. You know, I can't imagine. Not doing the right thing or ignoring something, and having a, a uh, an employee you know t- take their t- take their own life or something like that. And even though I know that happens, it happens in law enforcement too much. It happens in the fire service, and you know, I, I hope and pray it never happens on my watch. But if it does, I want to know I, I gave them every opportunity. You know that I threw them that life rope that I I gave them. Um, advice that I, I opened my heart and I opened my home. I opened my mind. I did everything that I could. Um, I don't know that I could move forward from the loss of an employee through suicide and question myself, whether I did everything I I, I, I could have done. And, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I had an m- employee one time that I knew he was going through some stuff and we had some of those initial conversations. And he was really, I'm good, Chief. Hey, thank you. And he was very appreciative. Um, you know, thanks for having me in. No, everything's cool. I got it. No problem. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I didn't hear anymore for a few weeks. And then my phone rang about two or three o'clock in the morning. Home phone, cell phone, and you know, caller ID, it's this employee. And I answer the phone and he said, C- "Can you talk?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Where are you?" And he said, "I'm sitting on your front porch." So even though it didn't happen immediately when the door was opened, he, he took advantage of it at at a later time, and and we were able to we were able to help him and and get him headed in the right direction. So uh, it's something that we we just have to change our mindset, and you know we've we've got to you know let employees know that, that they can. They can share these things. They can talk to us. And, you know, again, the, the supervisor side of us, you know, the administrator side, you can't be standing there with a ticket book waiting for them to screw up. Because if they're going through something, they probably are going to screw up. So you need to plan for that ahead of time.
0: Uh, that's sound advice. You're right, because when people's minds aren't all in it, there's going to be mistakes. And, you know, I, I think from a leadership side, you, you make sure those mistakes are, are minor and not life threatening, but they're going to happen. Um, that's, you know, it might be errors on paperwork or, you know, something like that, but, um, you hope it never escalates beyond that. Um, you know, I read an interesting article probably two or three months ago, and I think we covered it on an earlier podcast. I, for life of me, can't remember which episode I was trying to look it up real quick, but, um, it was essentially looking at the fire service specifically and how, um, to mitigate PTSD symptoms in firefighters. And they, you know, they went through all of their, you know, research that was like 2,800 firefighters were, um, observed in this study. And the one thing that they didn't account for was how much that first line supervisor, um, impacts the mental health of an individual firefighter. And, um, they found after they redid the study, um, six months later and, and basically found the same thing that those with frontline supervisors who made themselves a, a mentorship role and, um, I don't want to go as far as saying we're best friends because sometimes, you know, that there has to be a line there because if not, you know, favoritism comes into play and that's kind of bad for everybody. Um, But having that mentorship role from that frontline supervisor was such an impactful thing to keep people from having, you know, these PTSD issues. And they found that it wasn't just because of at the work stuff, but it was they were more willing to call them and say, "Hey, I'm I'm struggling right now. We're really close, like you said. You know, fire service. you, You guys all live together." Um, you know, you're in each other's weddings, you're, you friends. And, you know, it's, those are very tight bonds that come into place. So, you know, how, how, how do you encourage your frontline supervisors to take the job, take that ownership of it and make sure that the, the people under their command are cared for the same way that you care for everybody at the fire station?
1: Well, it, in my opinion, the company officer is probably the most important role in the fire service um, far more than the chief of the department because of just what you said they're sitting down at the table you know first thing in the morning and having a cup of coffee and uh, they are they they know these people inside and out you know they can tell at first glance that you know somebody didn't shave today or somebody's uniform isn't um, clean or they, they any small change in behavior or performance they're going to see it immediately and these frontline supervisors have to be trained to uh, see these things and observe this behavior and be able to have these conversations and you know one of the things i've told my guys is if uh you know if you need to talk to somebody and you don't want to make a big you know because you know how things are in public safety uh, you know, even in law enforcement, if somebody's in the the chief's office or the supervisor's office with the door closed, you know, within a couple of minutes, everybody on the department knows. You know, they're sending text messages, "Hey, so and so's in the office with the door closed." You know, so one of the things that you know we've done is you tell them, "Hey, just hop in the pickup truck. We're going to go out and you know check some fire hydrant somewhere as a ruse to just get them alone. You know, just to talk to them. Hey, is everything okay?" how are things do you need anything and they have to act and sometimes maybe just that initial conversation is hey i saw this i'm i'm here for you if if you need me um but i cannot stress how important that is the frontline supervisor because by the time it gets all the way to me the train is usually off the tracks um but they can see things early you know they know uh just job performance, you know, you can tell they're not really in the mix, or they're kind of off in the corner, maybe on their cell phone more than normal, or, you know, just behavior that doesn't quite fit. But I can't stress that enough how important that is those those supervisors that are out there shoulder to shoulder with the employees are so key. Um, uh, and let me ask you this, you know, in in, in in your line of work, you know, would that be more, you know, down lower on the, the, the sergeant level than it would be, you know, somebody that's, you know, h- higher up, um, within the organization,
0: yeah. So you know, I'm kind of equating that to our sergeant's position as being, you know, one of the, like you said, it's the most important position that we have. I mean, literally, our sergeants run our organization because they're doing all of the the payroll for everybody. They're auditing things. You know, they're setting up. You know, they're they're looking at where crime trends are, crash trends are, and addressing it locally. Everything above that is just trying to get them resources that they can do their jobs for their people. Um, and I think sometimes there's a misconception about why you know, supervisors are maybe hard about appearance standards. And you you hit on it perfectly. If I hold you to a standard of making sure that your uniform is squared away every day, that your shoes are shined, your hair is cut, you're, you're fresh shaved. If I hold you to that standard every day, I'm going to notice when it's not there. Then I can start looking at okay, why has that standard dropped? Are are you just you not care about the job anymore, or is there something bigger out there that's going on? And nine times out of ten, when we start seeing you know that kind of um you know it's not usually performance that suffers first it's usually appearance appearance comes and then performance later so you know if we can get ahead of it on the the appearance side and, and kind of start that conversation just like you said the frontline supervisor has to be engaged they have to know what's going on with their people and uh, i can tell you this as an administrator nothing makes me happier than when i take a, a visit to a facility for an audit or whatever and you, know, you sit down and you ask the frontline supervisors who's ready to get promoted today and who needs work and why. And the ones that can answer those two questions very in depth and, and, you know, f- full of examples. Those are the ones that understand that, why that's important. It's not just, Oh, we want our people to look pretty and uniform that that's not really it. It's, it's not it at all. It's a whole lot more, which like you said, you've already hit on that. When things start to suffer, there's a reason for it. We need to get to the bottom as to why
1: yeah, no, no, no question. So,
0: you know, I know I've been picking your brain about how you handle things there at, um, at your local level. So when it comes to the, the fire chiefs association, looking at Ohio, more bigger picture, has there been more of a concerted effort to take a look at the mental health tour that our, uh, firefighters endure throughout their careers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have a subcommittee, um, the Ohio Fire Chiefs Health and Wellness, and it is led by some outstanding people who are um, gathering research and and really working with experts to try to provide better resources to Fire Chiefs in Ohio of, of how we can help our employees. And then our organization as a whole has been involved with trying to push legislation that would recognize PTSD as an employee injury, you know, and and work with the Ohio Bureau of Workers Comp and, and try to make sure their resources are available. And that's been a challenge. And there's lots of different reasons. And, you know, I, I think when you sit down and you talk to the legislators, you know, they certainly want to do everything they can to support fire and, and police agencies. Um, but sometimes, you know, there's there's financial issues, you know, tied to it. And and the tough thing about PTSD as an injury is you know, if you have a, a trooper crash their car and break their arm, you can see a broken arm. You put a cast on it, it gets better and, the, and, and, and you move on, but you can't see PTSD. And so that's really, that's really tough. And in my experience, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a data analyst, I'm just a, a fire chief. In almost every case where I know I've had an employee struggle with their mental health, the trigger is something non-related to work. I kind of look at it like this, you know, all these terrible things that we've seen, you know, fire victims and, and, you know, children that are hurt. And, you know, I I don't have to go into detail. I mean, your listeners know what I'm, what I'm talking about. That stuff's there. And I, I almost say it's like on a hard drive in your brain and it's just going straight into the hard drive, but you're not pressing play and watching it all the time. The triggers so often are personal. Um, you know, they 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 catch their wife in some type of a, a of an affair, or husband. Um, there's a divorce, and it's not going well. You know, they're battling to uh, get custody of their kids, or they're going through a bankruptcy, or you know, there's 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 something that's happened outside that is the trigger, and then all the stuff on that hard drive starts wanting to play. And I, and I think it's like, it's been hidden away and then this bad thing happens. And then all of a sudden all these images and, you know, like I said, these videos that are on the hard drive start playing. And then that's when somebody really slips off the edge. Again, let me, let me make it clear. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. That's just my observation of, you know, 31 years of doing this. If you think I'm out in left field, tell me, Dave.
0: No, I I think we see the same thing in our line of work. Um, you, you know, everything's fine until it's not. I mean, there are sometimes people get triggered by on-the-job stuff. Um, I know Josh; he's one of the co-founders for Frontline Freedom. The thing that kind of triggered him was, it was a tragic event, but compared to everything else he had done in his entire career, it was a relatively minor thing, and he'll he'll tell you that. But it was just, you know, all the years of doing this plus his military before that. It just kind of pushed it all to the forefront, like you said that that hard drive just hit autoplay and it wouldn't stop. And um, you you know, kudos to him because he he took the time to kind of look at himself and see what worked for him to get get himself on the right track. And um, I I can tell you this: he's a much happier and better man today than he was, you know, before going through all that. As all that stuff was kind of building up on him. So, um, but but you're right; it's not always a work related thing that that triggers people. And I think you know, like, like you've pointed out as being a person in a leadership position, it's kind of on you to notice these subtle changes in people so that you can see when they're, you know, they're teetering on that edge and we don't, we don't want people to go over that edge. You know, if I could, if I could have a mechanism that stopped people from ever having, you know, a, a trigger event in their life, I would, I know it's not realistic, but, you know, I feel like it's, you know, partly my job to, to recognize the early signs of it and try to put an end to it before it gets to, um, you know I don't want to say breaking point because people aren't objects and people don't break um but you know I think everyone understands what I mean by the term breaking point so sure. if we can keep them from getting there that's that's what we would like to do
1: yeah and you you're right it it's not always the front page news um call that is something that sticks with you you know I, and that's a question that people ask, you know, sometimes it's family members or, you know, kids at career days, you know, a terrible question to ask somebody like us is, hey, you know, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? I know you've been asked that. And I always find a way to kind of skirt around it, but, and they want to hear you say, you know, is you know, burned bodies or, you know, something really, you know, gnarly and tragic. But I can tell you, I remember a call, I had only been on the department just for a couple of years. We went to a local, um, apartment complex. And it was a real vague call it came in like child ill or something. And we got there and the, the mother had the kid kind of wrapped up in a blanket standing right there at the front door. And it was like snowy and really cold. And I don't know, the medic unit wasn't quite ready yet or something. And I asked to step inside and, and uh, I, she really didn't want me to come in, but I did. And there was three or four other kids all kind of huddled in the corner under a blanket, no furniture in this house, no food in the refrigerator. And I have thought about those kids and that call over the last 30 years. it wasn't, you know, uh, again, a, a front page news story, but I've always thought, boy, I wish I would have done more in that situation. And it's strange how I can picture her face and remember it like it was yesterday and uh and again it, it wasn't a, a fiery crash you know it's it's strange how some things stick with you but we're all different and you know for whatever reason um wherever you're at at in your life in your personal life um with your own health journey who knows it could be the next call we all go on that could be the one for us dave
0: you're absolutely right, and you know that's a huge emotional response to, especially as a young firefighter, you know, or a medic, or, you know, to go into that call and kind of have to see that, and you know, those are the sides of life that you know people, you know, they ask you what's the worst thing you've ever been on because it's it's so weird human nature, you know, everyone wants to look at the train crash. There's nothing pretty to see at a train crash, but everyone looks. Um, but you know, those are the things that the emotional ones that that stick with you, you know, and and those same things happen to me. You know, I can remember. You know, traffic stops where you're where you're dealing with people who have nothing, and you know you, you try to do the best you can. You need to get people gas, get them off the road. You know, just get them so they can be warm for the night. You know, I can remember buying hotel rooms for people throughout my career. Um, but you know, and I think I think that's the frustrating thing with being in law enforcement is that the news doesn't really see that part of it, and that happens every day. I'm not I'm not special by any stretch because it literally happens every day, every shift, at almost every department in the entire country that those incidents happen where. You know, you're you're putting somebody's life, like you said, you're given a glimpse and an opportunity to to make an impact. And, and what do you do with it? You know, you can focus on the positive and try to make it better for right now. But even even if you fix the here and the now, it, it doesn't stop you from thinking about it. You know, here you are, 30 years later, still thinking about it.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: Well, Chief, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day today.
1: I appreciate it. It's uh, you know, it's been like I said, an honor to be in this profession and. You know, I enjoy talking about it and you hope that maybe somebody hears something that you said or I said that is a spark for them to, to take better care of themselves or their people. If so, then that's a win.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy Podcast. If you have a story you'd like to share, send us an email at podcast at frontlinefreedom.org. And if you're looking for more information on Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy Trips, check out our website at www.frontlinefreedom.org.